Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard... The nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I have the amazing Christy Amadio with me. Now, Christy is a recovered activist. She is the founder of Recovered Living New Zealand, New Zealand's first charitable residential eating disorder treatment centre. With a 14-year history of an eating disorder, Christy sought treatment in three different countries before finding recovery in residential treatment in California. This experience led her to opening a charitable residential treatment centre so that others could get the help they deserved without having to fly to the other side of the world. Described as empathetic, quirky and refreshingly honest, Christy is a qualified counsellor in Australia and New Zealand and a certified eating disorder recovery coach through the Carolyn Coston Institute in America. She has a rich history of being an elite athlete, an outdoor instructor and has helped individuals all over the world in their journeys towards recovered. Thank you so much for joining me today, my dear friend. Thank you, Millie. I'm so excited to be here. Now, I would like to begin with you giving our wonderful listeners an insight into your eating disorder journey. Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, really being an elite athlete, I think my eating disorder was really hidden in the athlete kind of field because it was very common for athletes, quote unquote, eat healthy or to be exercising all the time. And I think even for myself, I didn't even really know that I had an eating disorder. It was just part of what I did as part of my sport and part of the identity that I carved for myself. And I think if I was to be honest, deep down, I knew that something wasn't right, but there was so much going on that I just pushed it off to the side. And things really got to a head and it became apparent that I wasn't okay and I felt really trapped in that. Okay, so what did that feel like? For you, for someone who hasn't been an eating disorder, what did that feel like physically, mentally? It felt like there was at least two of me. <laughs> there was there was definitely an eating disorder in my head, but there was. I think the eating disorder was so much. It was part of my identity. It was punishment. It was reward. It was obligation. It was trying to be good or right. There was so many different pieces to it. And so it felt confusing. It felt overwhelming. It felt lonely. I didn't know who to turn to. And when I did try to get help, I think it was really hard to get specific eating disorder help at the time. 
And what age were you when this was all happening? I was about 14 when my eating disorder started and I reached out for help when I was 18. And essentially what happened is I ended up retiring from elite sport and I had what I would recall a high-functioning eating disorder. I think I could performance eat. I could go out to a restaurant and eat with friends. I could take food to uni and appear that I was okay, but it was all very much performance eating. And if anyone was to come home with me, I never had people over to my house because I didn't want people to see that I was so awkward around food and that I didn't have a normal relationship with food. And so I think I was very good at performance eating. But internally, it was constantly, I'd wake up in the morning and would just constantly be calculating and saying, okay, so I've got uni here and I have to eat lunch here, but then I have to exercise over there and then I can restrict here. It was very much a checks and balances accounting in my head. And so I think I really just flew under the radar for a long, long time. And I even changed my career in service of my eating disorder. I was so panicked at the idea of giving up elite sport that I was like, well, if I'm training X amount as an elite athlete, then I have to keep this up. Otherwise, I'm just going to balloon when I stop training. And so I ended up changing my career to being an outdoor instructor because in my head, I was like, well, then I can get paid to exercise every single day. And it seemed like a great solution to me. And the truth is, I really do love the outdoors and I really do love being active. And I was doing it in service of an eating disorder. So through my recovery, I really had to peel that apart. And I did end up working again in the outdoors, but I did it so differently the second time around because it wasn't coming from anxiety or from fear or from self-loathing. It was coming because I love the outdoors, but I had to heal the eating disorder part first. And so talk to me, how long and all were you unwell for? Uh, 14 years until I first went to treatment in America. And going to treatment, I'd been told in both Australia and New Zealand, that I would have to learn to manage my eating disorder. And so my expectations were, oh, I'm a human that has an eating disorder and I just have to do the best I can with that. That was what I was setting myself up for. And I had a really rough relapse when I was about 27 years old. And um, the psychologist said to me, you know, Christy, you need to really come to terms with the fact that this is going to be the pattern of your adult life. You're going to have periods of doing well and you're going to have periods of relapse. And I said to her, I said, that's my life and I don't want it because living with an eating disorder is not living. <laughs> and it just felt so hopeless. And she said, well, I'm sorry, but you just need to come to terms with that. And I was like, there was something in me that was like, nope. And so what I did is I looked online and found a treatment center in America that talked about people being fully recovered. And that was so foreign to me. I was like, what does that even mean? And when I spoke to the lady on the phone, I said, look, I don't think you can help me because I'm chronic. And she said, I'm going to stop you there. So we actually don't believe in the word chronic. And I said, oh, but you don't understand. And she said, no, 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 I'm going to stop you there. She said, we don't care how long you've had your eating disorder. We don't care how sick you've been. We don't care how many times you tried to recover. We believe that everybody can. And like, it makes me tear up even today because it was the first person that ever told me that I could. And I felt so drawn to this idea that maybe someone believed in me. And I wish it was a fairy tale story. Like I went there and my heart was opened and I walked through the front door and it was all rosy. Like, no, I walked through the front door and I was like, I'm sorry, you want me to do what? And I kicked and screamed and fought really hard for many, many weeks and really pushed against the recovery process because I, I, it just felt so wrong to me. But essentially, I got to be in treatment where there were people who were recovered and they were like enigmas to me. I was just, I remember just like watching them and being like, these are humans that have had an eating disorder and now they don't. And they just seem like these mystical creatures to me. And I wanted to be like them. I was really drawn to that. And I don't think that I believe that I could recover until I was just about there. I think there was always this seed of doubt. What if I can almost be recovered, but 
that last 10% will never go away and the voice will always be there? Or what if I can almost be recovered, whatever, in insert eating disorder comment here or belief. And it wasn't until I was just about there where I was like, oh, no, no, I, I can do this. And so I think my message to a lot of my clients is you don't have to believe you can recover in order to recover. You just have to be curious about do I even want a better quality of life or a different quality of life? If you have a curiosity, you don't have to want it. That's okay. You just have to be curious. Is there any part of me that's interested in a different quality of life? If you can start there, then you're on your way. I could not agree more. Curiosity is so, so important. And you're right. You don't have to believe. I didn't. It was, but I, I knew that I was curious definitely about having a better quality of life. That's for sure. 100%. Were there moments in the journey where you felt totally helpless? Oh, absolutely. There were times where I was like, I still remember like saying to my therapist, like, if this is recovery, I don't want it because this doesn't feel good. And she's like, I think we need to talk about what your expectations of the recovery process are, Christy, because I think for me, I had once I started recovery, that things would get better. And the truth is I started recovery and I felt worse, not just worse. I felt bad. I felt awful. Like things got exacerbated, like anxiety was through the roof. Depression was through the roof. My identity crisis was through the roof, everything. And so there were absolutely times where I felt hopeless. And I think what kept me going is really knowing that an eating disorder wasn't an option for me because... I'd already said, I, when I was in the thick of my eating disorder, I'd already said, I don't want this life. And so I knew that I didn't want my eating disorder. I didn't know if I wanted recovery. But as my therapist kept reminding me, she's like, well, how about you make that choice once you're recovered? She's like, if you recover and then you decide that you don't like that, you can go back to your eating disorder. But she's like, I've never met anyone who's recovered and has decided to go back. But she's like, you're allowed that choice. And so almost having that little bit of choice and being like, okay, I can't diss recovery until I'm recovered. <laughs> If I'm recovered and I hate it, then I can go back. And the truth is, there's no part of me that wants to go back, that would think about going back. If someone paid me a million dollars today to go back for 20 minutes of eating disorder, I wouldn't do it. Now, I would love a million dollars. I could do a lot with a million dollars for eating disorders, but I wouldn't do it. Not for 10 minutes, not for two seconds of my eating disorder, because it's betraying my soul. And I respect myself too much now. And I think the work that I put in to recover, I have a deep, pride for that, I think. And I, I would not be willing to compromise my soul for a second. Yeah. I resonate so deeply with that sister. My goodness, yeah. no amount of money, no, nothing in the world could ever convince me to go back there. As you say, even for 20 minutes. No, thank you. Life is too amazing on the other side. And I think that idea of you knew that you could go back at any time if that's what you chose to do. I told myself the exact same thing as well. Was, you know what? I owe it to myself to give this a go. And ultimately, if it is too hard and I once I've really given it a proper go, if I really can't stand it, then I can go back. But, you know, I think, but I think that's the key too, is you have to, you owe it to yourself to give it a proper go. Of course, it's going to be harder in the beginning. It's going to be petrifying and you're going to be terrified. You can't then go, oh, well, no, sorry, this is too hard and then turn back because you'll never get anywhere. But if you've given it a really good go and for an extended period of time, then there's always that option. But as you say, I've never met anyone who's recovered that regrets it, that's for sure, or, or, or wants to go back. Absolutely. Yeah, my therapist used to say, do your meal plan, do your exercise plan for a year. And if after that year, you said, I'd be like a year, how about a month? She was like, nope. <laughs> You have to go through all the seasons, all the birthdays, all the anniversaries, all the everything. 
go through life. Because I like to say to people, like, I'm recovered. And I think sometimes people expect that it's all butterflies and rainbows. And I'm like, I still get broken up with. I still get parking tickets. I still, I don't know, get the get a cold sometimes. Like, life still happens to me. I just don't take it out my food on my body anymore. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? Absolutely. 100,000%. I mean, I think when I started recovery, I had this idea that because I hated my body so much, detested it, that the other side of that was love. And I really grappled with that for a long time. And I think I have a different type of love for my body now than what I expected to have. And I think what I've learned along the way is that if I look in the mirror and love my body because of how it looks, that's not love, that's objectification. Whereas the love that I have for my body now is I love my body, not for how it looks, but for just the fact that it survived and put up with everything I put it through, for the fact that it does stuff for me. That's why I love my body, not for how it looks. And I think when I look in the mirror now, I'm just like, I'll do. You know, it's not like, it's not, I hate you. It's not, oh my goodness, look at this, look at that. I'm like, yeah, like that's me. Okay. Hi, Christy. And let's get on with my day. There's like a different level of attachment to what I thought I would have in recovery. And I really struggled with body dysmorphic disorder to the point where I actually recovered from my eating disorder, fully, absolutely, completely different relationship with food. But I had raging body dysmorphic disorder to the point where I felt like I didn't want to live with the body that I had. And it was, it felt like such a cruel irony to me because in my eating disorder, I didn't want to live because the body that I had. And then in my recovery, I didn't want to live because the body that I had. And I was like, hang on, something doesn't line up here. And it turned out that there was this body dysmorphic disorder that probably underpinned the entire eating disorder. And I was very, very fortunate to find a therapist that specialized in BDD in the UK, actually. His name is Rob Wilson. And he's written many books on BDD. And I really think I owe my life to many people for helping me recover from my eating disorder, but I think I also owe my life to the man that helped me recover from body dysmorphic disorder. And that was some really intense years of one-to-one therapy working through that. And now how I, like, I feel like I have a completely different relationship with food from recovering from eating disorder. And I have a completely different relationship with my body from recovering from BDD. Like I don't, obsessed about my body anymore like it used to be a 24-7 obsession that I didn't know how to stop it was like someone was beating a drum next to my head 24-7 and I didn't have earmuffs and I couldn't tell them to go away and I didn't know how to make it stop and that's just not there anymore and the the self-consciousness about my body and the comparing to other people like that's just not there anymore how did you manage to cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise such a great story so I was in treatment and it was probably my first week and I remember a particular therapist was running a group and she said something along the lines of did you know you don't need to exercise in order to maintain your weight and I swear to you Millie a part of my soul just went oh thank the lord and I was like in that case I'm done with exercise because I think I'd spent so much of my life punishing myself with exercise, dragging myself out of bed in the morning, climbing another mountain. I hate climbing mountains. I hate riding bikes. I did a lot of that in my eating disorder under this belief that I had to exercise in order to maintain my weight. And when someone told me that, I often wish that parts of my recovery had been like a light bulb. And I think that's the one thing that truly was like a light bulb moment for me where I just went, if she said I don't have to exercise, then I am. And I didn't. We had choices to exercise in treatment. I was like, nope. I don't want to, like my soul is done. And so I actually feel like I had a real hiatus from exercise. And there was a beautiful gift in that actually, because 
the first couple of months in treatment, I didn't do anything really at all. And I ate food and I got to a healthy weight and I maintained it. And I really got on a deep core soul level that you do not have to exercise to maintain your weight, sweetheart. And a few years later, I was working in New Zealand in the outdoors and I actually fell off a cliff and I damaged my feet. And I couldn't walk properly for quite a while. And I really couldn't do any exercise. And there was actually people saying to me like, oh, you're going to have to watch what you eat because your exercise levels have changed. And I was like, no, I don't. (laughs) I can promise you I don't because I'd had those experiences in treatment. And it was such a gratifying recovery story for me because if I had damaged my feet in my eating disorder, oh my goodness, I would have panicked. There would have been anxiety. My food would have completely changed everything. Whereas I was like, no, bring me food. I'm okay. And so I feel like, my relationship with exercise now is I don't like to exercise. I don't like running. I don't like climbing mountains. I don't like riding bikes. I will probably never exercise again, but I like to play. I love playing volleyball. I love squash. I like riding my horses. I like kayaking. But in the way that I used to kayak, oh, I'm going to reach that point in this amount of time, or I'm going to do this amount of kilometers, or I'm going to do this amount of exercise today. There is none of that. It's like I go and play squash with a friend and we laugh and we have fun and then we go out to lunch. That's my relationship with exercise now. How liberating. Oh, completely. I feel like I'm, I'm out of jail. Totally, totally. That's amazing. I know there'll be so many listeners out there breathing a sigh of relief and going, oh my goodness, I never knew. Yeah. And I mean, and I understand that it may not be a light bulb moment for everybody. But what I want to say is like, if you're willing to be brave enough to give it a try and it's not going to feel good. Like it wasn't like, I was like, oh, great, I don't need to exercise, and then it was fine. Like, no, I thought, great, I don't need to exercise. I felt icky, I felt sluggish, I felt slow, I felt lethargic. But I also knew that going and walking when my eating disorder was like, burn every calorie you can, that didn't have peace and freedom attached to it either. So both choices were challenging, but the second choice, the recovery choice, had a doorway that led to freedom. Such a beautiful way to put it. It really is. What was the catalyst for you deciding that you wanted to use your lived experience to help others? I like that question. It was actually because I fell off the cliff. So I fell off the cliff and then I had to change the direction of my career because I couldn't work in the outdoors anymore. In fact, like my feet are damaged to the point where it's completely shifted my entire lifestyle. But I was like, okay, so if I can't work in the outdoors, what can I do? And I was like, I can eat food really well and I can talk to people. I already had a counseling degree at that point, but I just chose to work in the outdoors. So I was like, I guess I'll go and specialize in eating disorders. I started and it just, it just really took off because I think there wasn't a lot of specialist support available in New Zealand at the time. And it just grew in leaps and bounds. And I still remember the very first day I was in treatment in America I was in the admissions room, like signing the documents to say like, yes, I agree to be in treatment. And I could hear one of the therapists running a group. And I still don't remember what she was saying, but I just remember the passion in her voice. And she was loud and her voice went up and down. And I remember signing the admission agreement. And I wanted to say to the person in the room, like, can we just skip this? And can I go in there? Because whatever's happening in there is life changing. And I need to be a part of that now because that's why I'm here. And I'd never felt like that before. Anytime I went for any sort of treatment for an eating disorder. It was just like, it was quiet and it was reflective and it was, how do you feel? And I needed someone who could face my eating disorder, who wasn't scared, scared of my eating disorder, who could really shake it up. And so even in that moment, I remember thinking, whatever's going on here, and I don't know what it is yet, but whatever's going on here needs to be in New Zealand. 
and I was still in my in my little hatchling egg at that point of recovery. But at that point, I still went, whatever's going on in this magical place that I'm not sure if I trust yet, but I'm curious about, needs to be in New Zealand. And so that really sat as a seed inside me for years, like the idea of starting a residential treatment center. And it was actually just before COVID, an ex-client of mine, their parents rang me and said, Christy, we really appreciate what you've done with our child. And we really think that residential treatment should be available in the same way that it is in America, in New Zealand. If we would have helped you start a residential treatment center, would you be in? And I was like, would I? <laughs> like, please. So they were really the, twice. <laughs> yeah. So they were really the catalyst for me diving in and being, all right, let's not just do one-to-one individual therapy, but let's go and do, let's go and open a residential treatment center. And gosh, I thought it would be harder. It's been harder. But you have done <laughs> such an incredible job. Like it's been a true test of resilience and you're just, yeah, it's inc- incredible. Thank you. But we're nearly there. So we are, we purchased a beautiful eight bedroom home in North Canterbury in New Zealand. It's on 12 acres and I'm sitting in it right now, actually. And it kind of gives me goosebumps because it's even better than I had imagined what it would be. And we're on track to open in October of this year for our first clients. So it's a big dream. It's a big journey. And I'm just really, I'm already grateful to the clients that have put their names down who have said, I want, I want to recover. I want a different quality of life. I'm already grateful for their courage. It is so incredibly exciting. Now, I am well aware of why Recovered Living is going to be an absolute game changer. For listeners who aren't already familiar with it, can you share with us a little bit more more about it and why is it so important to you that Recovered Living is a really holistic, homely environment rather than a clinical hospital-like setting? Yeah. And I think it really stems from my experience in America. And I think back home in Australia and New Zealand, I've been weight restored, but my mind wasn't restored. And for me, that kept me in the eating disorder cycle. And I like to say to people, just because you're weight restored doesn't mean you're recovered because you develop, most people develop an eating disorder when they're a healthy weight and get essentials at like a pharmacy or a warehouse or a Kmart, whatever you want to call it. And it was really living life, like doing normal things. Guess what? When you park at the grocery store, you don't park two blocks away so that you can get extra calories in and walk. You know, you park in a normal place and you go and walk into the store and you walk out again. Even practice cooking, practice all the things, like the life skills in recovery that I think people that have never had an eating disorder take for granted, like writing out a shopping list that terrified me. The first time I ever bought garlic, I had to call my therapist and be like, does this live in the fridge or does it live in the cupboard? Because I don't know. And what do I do with it? Like there were so many things I had to learn just around being around food that as a 27 year old woman, I was so embarrassed by that I didn't know how. And I think the older I got, the more embarrassed I got. And so the more I withdrew socially because I was like, I don't know what to do with food. And so really for me, it recovered living in bed. We're wanting to emulate life and so giving people that practice in being able to grocery shop and prepare their own food. What do you do with leftovers? For someone with an eating disorder, that can be a massive dilemma. What do you do with half an apple? And why do you have half an apple in the first place? This is a better question. What do you do with these things and how does that fit? And so really being able to navigate life is really important to me as part of a recovery program. How important has it been to involve the local community in your establishment of recovered living? So important and they've been so amazing. Like I've got someone outside my window right now who is volunteering some time in the garden, which is incredible. 
Um, and I think people are really excited too that something different is coming, something different and also something that hasn't been done before. I think, you know, North Canterbury, it's more of a rural feel. There's a lot of dairy farmers or sheep farmers out here and we're doing something different. So the community has really rallied. Will your staff have lived experience? Absolutely. So it's not a requirement that staff have to have had an eating disorder and recovered, but we're absolutely, of course, interested in hiring people that have had an eating disorder and identify as being recovered. And we're just as interested in hiring people that have never had an eating disorder because I think that's a healthy experience as well for someone to be like, no, I've never actually had thoughts about eating carbs or the shape of my stomach to be like, wow, that's a thing. Some people think like that. I think that's a really healthy reframe and reality check as well. What role will recovery coaches play? Yeah, so recovery coaches are absolutely a core part of our team in the sense that they're on the ground. So they will be doing meal support with our clients. They will be doing things like going to the beach, going on beach walks, doing one-to-one check-ins with clients, really helping with the preparation for discharge as well because I think recovery coaching can really look at the nuances of after-day program, which runs seven days a week, then people can lean into partial programs. The partial program runs four hours a day. And while people are impartial, they can either be working, studying, volunteering, parenting, like whatever it is that you normally do in life or want to lean into, you can do that, but still come back to Ireland Dead, you know, each day so that you've got that touchstone support. And partial program, the minimum you can be impartial is three days a week, four hours a day. So you're really able to step it down from that really intensive 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and step down as you're ready. And then how is it to go back into the world? How is it to work? How is it to go out with friends? And then come back, come back to a place that you know, that you feel safe, that you trust, that you're familiar with, come back and debrief it, take a breath, ground, and get ready to go out again. How important has Carolyn Coston's Eight Keys philosophy been in the development of your program? So important. So Carolyn's been really instrumental in helping us develop the program as well as other treatment team members that I was in America with. I'm so fortunate that we've kept a relationship somehow over the years. And so it's, it's this bizarreness of like the people that worked with me in my recovery are now working with me to help develop this residential treatment so center. So special. And I have so much appreciation for them. I think Carolyn Costin's eight keys has been instrumental. Like it's a fundamental piece of our program and particularly the piece about we believe in everybody's capacity to be recovered 100%. Talk to me about what a typical day might look like. So typical day in, in treatment at RLNZ is so typical with any recovery meal plan is we eat three meals and three snacks a day. So breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack, that's set. And then we work the program around meals and snacks. So typically there'll be three therapeutic groups a day. And so that might be looking at things like body image. It might be DBT skills or CBT skills. It might be actually just portioning in the kitchen, like getting in there and actually doing some physical like, hey, let's portion cereal and let's practice doing it in a way that's in alignment with your recovery and let's see what comes up when you're portioning cereal. Like, is there a resistance to it? Is there what goes on in your head? What's the anxiety? But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we've got the meals and the snacks and then the structure around that is we've got three therapeutic groups today. We've also got experiential groups. So experiential groups are things like maybe going to the Sunday market, going to the warehouse or Kmart for essentials, like doing everyday life stuff but doing it with 
an appropriately nourished body and doing it in appropriate ways for appropriate reasons. So we've got those experiential groups or outings and I've completely forgotten the third bit. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I'll take a pause. And then we've got our movement groups as well. So I think movement's a really important part of recovery in that teaching people to have a healthy relationship and healing their relationship with movement. And so we've got a couple of different things on offer. Everything from we've got a beautiful garden out here. So whether it's gardening, we're really close to the beach. We're an eight-minute drive from the beach. So being able to go down to the beach, do a beach walk, sit on the beach. And how is that different if you're in your eating disorder? Would you be on the beach in the past to punish yourself? Would you do it to earn your food? Would you do it to burn your food? What were your reasons before and what are your reasons now? So really, I look at psychological process groups. I look at experiential groups and I look at movement groups. They're the, the core groups that we have. And every, And recovery happens seven days a week, 365 days a year, you know, just because it's Christmas or just because it's Easter, it doesn't mean that we take time off and programs shut down. Eating disorders don't take a break, so neither does recovery. So we really are a 365 day a year program and weekends as well. It's a, it's a full program. Recovery doesn't stop for the weekend. And you have a four week minimum length of stay. Why is that? It's a great question. Really, I don't want to cut anyone short and talk to Carolyn a lot about this. And one of the things that she's been mentoring or one of the pieces that she's been mentoring me on is that really if people were to come for one week or two weeks, it's not enough time for them to have enough breaks from their eating disorder so that we can have confidence in sending them back out into the world and saying you've had enough space um, from your eating disorder to develop some traction in recovery. We want people... Essentially, we want people to come for as long as they're able to come because I think the more time and space you can give yourself in a recovery environment, the better position you set yourself up for. But in the same way, I don't ever want people to think I've only got 30 days or I've only got four weeks, therefore I can't recover. No, that's not true. I've seen people that have only had 30 days in treatment and they're recovered today. Is it easier if you have more time? In residential treatment, absolutely it's easier, but it's not a defining it's not a defining role of the diet as to whether you'll recover or not. Now, there are many answers in my head to this question, but I'm really curious as to what you think makes RLNZ unique. Oh, that is such a big question, Millie. I think I'm going to have to sit with that for a second because you're right, there are so many and I have competing answers all jostling for attention in my head. When I think about what we represent, to me, it feels like a home. When I look at this house, when I envision people coming, it's a home. And I want people to feel at home here, both in the fact that they're living here, but also this is where they come to heal and to be at home in their skin, to be at home with themselves. And so I think that the word home, I'm giving my goose, myself goosebumps, but the word home to me is really sticking out as it's a place people can feel connected to, they can feel safe, they can feel supported. It's a place where they can come to recover. I have goosebumps from head to toe right now. Wow. I just, I cannot begin to articulate how excited I am about you bringing this to fruition because it is truly going to be so game-changing and 
just the way that you have been so passionately dedicated to bringing it to life and the way that it needs to be brought to life in that holistic manner and just staying so true to to your values and to the incredible work of Carolyn. I'm I'm so proud of you. Thank you, Millie. Now, the cost of care often prevents people from accessing residential treatment. I know that you have worked absolutely tirelessly to ensure that you're providing your incredible services at the lowest price possible while still ensuring that you deliver the highest quality of care. Has that been hard? Yeah, and I think it's always going to be hard. That's just the truth. And I already know And I'm already receiving heartbreaking emails from people saying, I can't afford the cost of treatment. Can you please help me? And I want to say, I I hope I can. And we are absolutely applying to tenders with the Ministry of Health. We are asking people in the community if they're able to donate and support. And my long-term vision, Millie, is that Recovered Living NZ does get the funding that it needs so that this can be available to everybody at no cost, I think would be amazing. I think that would be an, that's an incredible vision and goal that we've got. Right now, it is private pay because we've had an incredible amount of financial support to get us off the ground and up and running. And the cost of a residential eating disorder treatment center, like it blows my mind every time I look at the spreadsheet. I'm like, are those, are those figures right? Do, do I have to do this again? And I do. And I'm like, no, no, those figures are right. It costs an incredible amount to run every single day because we have such a high ratio of staff to clients and we have a full multidisciplinary team of, you know, we have a medical doctor, we have a psychiatrist, we have a range of therapists, we have dietitians, we have overnight workers, nurses, uh, recovery coaches, a chef, maintenance it just goes on and on and that's just the team that's on the ground and then there's also a support team behind the scenes that are looking at the legal side the accounting side the fundraising just gets really big really fast so I think what I'm trying to say is that my ultimate vision is that this can be available to everybody at either low or no cost is the ultimate vision right now it's private pay because that's what we need in order to get us open I absolutely have my fingers crossed that the New Zealand government is going to wake up and realise what an absolute treasure of a home that you are going to be providing and just what a game changer it is going to be. You and I both know that could or could not happen. However, one can always hope. There is always What would your advice be to people out there listening who feel this is exactly the type of support they need to break free from the chains of their eating disorder, but they're scared to commit? I'm going to say to anyone that wants to, that is curious about a recovery program like RLNZ and they're scared to commit, I would say that sometimes the fear doesn't go away and you have to do it scared. And what I mean by that is it's literally you turn up and you eat fear for breakfast because, because it's there. And it's not waiting until the fear goes away. It's doing it despite the fear because the eating disorder is a fear mongerer and it will prey on that fear and it will play on that fear and blow it up. And I want to say, I'm okay with fear. Sit with your fear. I can sit with your eating disorder. I'm okay with that. You can come in here and be scared and you can still try it anyway. I love that. I absolutely love that. It's so, so true. I was absolutely petrified when I had my last ditch attempt at (laughs) regaining my life. I just remember being, not having ever experienced that level of fear ever before, but did it anyway. It was the best decision I ever made. 
Now, I just want to wind a little bit and talk about the live-in eating disorder recovery coaching that you did prior to starting RLNZ. Why did you decide on doing it in a live-in capacity? Yeah, wow. We are going to another another life of Christy. So what happened, Millie, is I was in New Zealand and I'd been recovered for a little while and I just missed my community back in LA. I missed my friends. I missed, I called them my family. I just missed that recovery community just so desperately. And so I decided to start eating disorder recovery coaching in America. And something that really stood out to me, I think being a New Zealander, and coming back to New Zealand after being in America in treatment is that I really struggled to find a treatment team. I struggled to find a dietitian. I struggled to find a therapist. I eventually did, who was amazing, but it was really hard to find a team. And it really just struck me that as a New Zealand, how isolated I was to support. So my vision when I started my business in America was that I wanted to start a business that provided eating disorder support for people, but really was targeting the people that maybe didn't live in the major cities or didn't have access the typical kind of multidisciplinary team that's ideal because those people are in every corner of the world. They're in every city for various reasons. So initially I started doing online support because I thought I've been in New Zealand. I've been working with a dietitian who's in America. I've been working with a therapist who's in England with the body dysmorphia stuff and it's been successful. So I'm like, let's give this a crack. And I got a lot of flack with people saying that I like to say that I started online therapy before COVID did. There was a lot of flack from people saying it's not safe, it needs to be in person to be effective. And are there risks and drawbacks to the online? Absolutely. But there are also some massive pros. Like I remember one of my first clients, she was in New York. I was in New Zealand. She came into session and she was like, I haven't eaten yet. Like my life is a mess. I've got so much anxiety. And I thought to myself, you know, we could like talk this out and plan out what she's going to eat. Well, we can just eat now. And so I said to her, I was like, take me into your kitchen. Show me your laptop around the kitchen. And she was like, you mean now? And I was like, yeah, now. And she's like, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, that's exactly why we should. And so she opened her fridge and there was like barely anything in it. And I was just like, in that moment, I was like, no wonder she's stressing. Like, it's very hard to magic a meal out of nothing. So I got her to show me around the rest of the home. Like we looked in the pantry, we looked in the freezer, and I think we cobbled together like a turkey burger or something and put some stuff on the side. And I ate dinner with her. Like it was lunch for me, dinner for her. And she wrote to me afterwards and said that was the most helpful thing that she'd ever experienced in her entire recovery to date. And I was like, I think I'm onto something here. And I started to think about if that was so helpful for her to do recovery in her home in that moment, what would it be like to live with people in their home? And something that I'd really appreciated in America was after residential treatment, they had a transition house for people that had come out of residential treatment and were doing well. And the idea was living in like a recovery home and a recovery space. And for me, that was essential to my recovery. And so I came up with this idea of like, I was like, I don't know if anyone's going to go for it, but I'm going to advertise that I will go and look at people in their homes. And I had this idea that maybe one or two people a year would take it up and it would be like a special kind of boutique thing within, I four, yeah, within like four months, I had a 12 month wait list. And I think I flew to maybe eight different countries. Like I went all over the world and was just incredibly humbled by people who would open up their homes to me. And it was such a blessing to sit with their family, sit with their parents, sit with their partners, sit with their children, meet their friends. I remember one client, I went to work with her for like two weeks because she was like, yeah, I really struggle at work. And I was like, cool. 
chat with the boss, see if you can get me a cubicle. So she'd go and do her work. I'd go and do my work. And then I'd be like, cool, let's, let's go and do like morning tea or morning snack, or whatever. Let's go and do lunch. And that was huge for her to, to do recovery at work. And everyone at work was so sweet and so supportive. Like we were just really open about why I was there and what we were doing. And we had big work chats about how they could help her. So I just had the most amazing experiences. And I think also it was really helpful for people who, I remember one client, she had she had five children and it just wasn't an option for her to go to residential treatment because she had five children and the husband, I think, worked away a lot and it was like, it just wasn't an option, but it was an option for me to come and live with them. And I was like, oh, how's it going to go with five kids? And it was fantastic. I felt like I became part of the family. I have many fond memories of working with people in their homes and it was such a blessing. It's such an incredible gift that you have given people in terms of offering that service. I know there are so many people out there who often ask me, do you, do you know how many live-in coaches? I, I, it's what, something that I really need and you were a real pioneer in that and you should be really proud of yourself for that because I know that, as I say, it's, it's a gift that you've given people to go, okay, I will come in and I will, you know, recovery coaching in and of itself is amazing in terms of being being available to people when they need you the most and not having office hours but to do the living is just another level and it takes a true it takes someone with true strength and resilience to go in there and do that and that's you my dear friend that's you thank you Amelia. it was just such a special time in my life it really was and if, if I had five of me one of them would still be doing living so who is eligible to apply for a stay at RLNZ so one thing I'm really clear about is that we're not a medical facility. We will have nurses on site, but we don't choose feed at RLNZ and people need to be medically stable in order to come here. And so I think that can be really different because at the moment in New Zealand, I think the services are so overrun. It's almost you have to be the thickest you can be in order to get in, into services. And I understand why they do that. But with RLNZ, you need to be as well as you can be to come because we're not working on physical stabilization. We need you to be medically stable. And what that means is that if you showed up to an emergency room, that they wouldn't admit you. And so we will ask people to go and see their doctor to get to get like a basic medical done, to get an ECG and blood test to make sure that they're, that they're suitable and appropriate to come into a residential environment. We are not gender ex exclusive. We will take people of all genders and all gender identities and anybody for the residential component, we will be taking people aged 18 and up. And if someone's interested in the day program and they're under 18, we can take ages 16 and up for the day program. Amazing. And if there are listeners out there today who are really interested in applying, where should they head to? Great question. I would go to the website, which is recoveredlivingnz.com. And on our homepage, you can actually put your name on the waitlist. And so currently we're collecting people's expressions of interest for the waitlist. And what we'll do is eight weeks prior to opening is we'll start reaching out to people who are on the wait list in order of people's names. We'll reach out to them eight weeks before we open and we'll ask them the question, like, are you interested in going further? Is this something you want to pursue? And if that's the case, then we'll start doing a more comprehensive full assessment so that people can be ready to come in October of 2022. Wonderful. How exciting. Now, what is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? That anything is possible. Yeah, I think, 
you know, I think reco- my recovery is the thing that I fought the hardest for and against, but it's the thing I fought the hardest for. And it's the thing that I'm the proudest of. And it's also something that I didn't think was possible. And then what are we eight, nine years later, it's like, it's, not only is it possible, but then so many more things are possible. So many more doors have opened since I've recovered. And so I think for me, a, a saying I really clung on to in treatment was I'm a prisoner of the rules that I live by. And a rule that I had in my mind was that I couldn't recover or I didn't believe, or I'm a prisoner of the beliefs that I live by, you know, and that's so true. And so I want to say to anyone that has any really strong beliefs of I can't do this or I don't deserve to do this or whatever it is, that's a belief but it doesn't mean it's a fact. So true. Anything is possible. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? Yeah, I would say be brave in having the difficult conversations because I was speaking with someone just the other day actually on the phone and they were saying to me, I'm scared to say the wrong thing. Like I, I don't want to say anything because I'm scared to say the wrong thing. And I'm like, okay, I need you to say all the things because if you say, quote, you know, in quotation marks, the wrong thing, that can be repaired. You can talk about it. But if you don't say anything, that's really leaving the person that has the eating disorder to marinate in their eating disorder. And the only way then is down. And so I think for anyone that's supporting someone that has an eating disorder, I want to say be brave and have the difficult conversations because nobody else is. So be that person who's willing to say the things and poke the eating disorder, poke the beast. And if you're getting a strong reaction, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Sometimes poking that beast and poking it hard is exactly what needs to be done. Yeah. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? Don't give up. The people that get better are the ones that keep trying. And I don't care if you're trying and you feel like you're not making steps forward. The analogy I like to give is if you're treading water and you feel like it's not working, if you stop treading water, you will sink. So when it feels like, man, I I keep trying and I keep trying and I'm not getting anywhere, well, you're going to go backwards if you stop. So I want to say to people, don't give up whatever you do. Keep keep treading water because you never know when that log's going to come along or the current's going to change. Or you might just find a firm bank underneath your feet and stand up. But don't give up because, like you always say it, Millie, there's always hope and recovery is absolutely possible. And that's true. There is always hope. And I could not agree with you more regarding not giving up. Even when you have other people giving up on you, like I had in my experience, don't be disillusioned by that. No one has any right to tell you that you can't recover. Don't let anyone or anything ever convince you that you're beyond help or that you can't get there because you can, you absolutely can. Christy can do it. I can do it. You can do it too. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are truly incredible. I am endlessly proud of you. I am so excited. Words cannot describe my level of excitement regarding RLNZ finally opening. And you've done it despite there being so many challenges and obstacles thrown your way, yet it is still going to be opening its doors and it is going to literally change lives. You are amazing. 
thank you for sharing your light. I know that there was so much in this episode that is going to help our listeners and you're just truly incredible. Thank you so much, Millie. It was so fun. I feel so energized. So thank you for having me along. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.